0: Black on the Scene is a love letter to Black creators, Black content, and Black voices who are helping to drive change and representation in entertainment. I'm John Gist, here with my lovely co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are two industry professionals that have worked on some of the most iconic multicultural film and television campaigns over the years.
1: The Black on the Scene podcast will highlight the many accomplishments of Black folks across film, TV, music, art, literature, and sports that celebrate diverse and nuanced stories, which embody our culture. In each episode, we shout out and give flowers to some culture contributors and creators that you know, and those you should know for being black on the scene. Hope y'all enjoy this week's conversation.
0: Hey, 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 everyone, I'm your guy, John Gist, and I'm here with my girl, Dee Dee Brown, and Black on the Scene is back with more amazing dialogue with some of our favorite people in the industry.
1: Oh my God, oh my God, John, I am so excited about today's guest. We have the James Bland here with us today.
0: Yes, Dee, that's right. And James is a friend who I've known for quite some time and it brings me so much joy to see his career continuing to blossom in such a great way.
1: Listen, you don't have to tell me I am the unofficial president of the James Bland Fan Club. Like seriously, James, in our pre-talk, I didn't tell you this, but when we met, I totally swooned over you. I was like, John, who is this guy? It wasn't just the fact that you're, of course, a gorgeous, beautiful specimen of a Black man, but your energy, your kindness, your just quiet strength that you embody shi- was definitely shining through. And I was like, I need to know him.
0: <laughs> James, uh, very in much true story. Very much true story. And I, the one thing I love about him, James, you work your ass off. Work. James is a multi-hyphenate creator, fam you, go Rattlers, educator, writer, director, producer, and actor. He created, executive produced, and starred in a daytime Emmy Award winning drama series, Giants, currently streaming on BET+. On top of that, you might have seen his name in the credits during the HBO Insecure documentary, Insecure the End, that he directed. Yes, he directed it, which was so amazing. Brilliant. And most recently, he worked as a writer on the upcoming Peacock limited series, The Best Man, Final Chapters. And everyone, you know, I talk about The Best Man all the time, so I cannot wait to watch, watch that. that. And, and he, he is currently, currently developing, developing a new original, original series for 20th Century Fox, Fox which we'll and, and star in. Man.
2: Dean and I are so excited, excited to have, have you have here, James. <laughs> Please, thank <laughs> you so, <laughs> so much thank for coming. Welcome to
1: Back on, on the Scene with Dean
2: and John. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be here because it's been two years since we've been in the same room, since the three of us.
1: have been able to like kick it in to conversate,
2: uh, so uh, I feel like we're back. Um, yeah, we're, we're back. Let's do it thank you how are you how you doing today what's going on how you feeling today i'm doing good uh i actually just got to florida uh my dad's birthday is tomorrow and so i flew in we're throwing him a surprise party so by the time this airs his birthday will be done (laughs) (laughs) not that i don't even know if he would even listen to it uh i was like does my dad listen to podcasts? podcast so i'll have to put him on but uh yeah i'm doing good i'm feeling great um
0: Let's go, since you're in Florida, I think this is a really great way to go back to the beginning because James is from Florida. And mm-hmm. let's talk about young James Bland. Who were you as a kid? Yeah. And were, you were you always, always l- being, being pulled, pulled towards the creative, creative space? space? Always. always.
2: I was always uh, a creative uh, child. Um, like I was that kid that would get color pencils and like creative art kits and sets uh, for Christmas or for birthdays. Uh, my main outlet for performance was the church. Growing up, I used to write and direct church plays. I was in the the, the children's choir, and I absolutely adored performing. Uh, however, I lost uh, so much of that as I kind of came of age, uh, because you know, growing up in the South, six I'm six six now, but you know, I was always a tall kid, and so I was pushed more towards sports and towards basketball, and then you know you want to be cool growing up and being a theater kid wasn't a cool thing to do. Uh, and so I I lost so much of it. I think once I got to middle school and to high school and my complete focus went to basketball track and also ran cross country. Uh, but I, I rediscovered my love for the arts and for filmmaking and for theater and for performing once I got to college. Um, and I stopped playing basketball and had a little bit more
1: time to, uh, explore that other side. So it was always sort of noodling at you, you get to college, and what was the thing that kind of, that noodling or that needling just sort of bubbled up? Were you like, oh, you saw the theater kids doing something, and you were like, I really should, so like, how did you get back into it, taking the step back? Because that's bold, to take a step back from athletics and have enough confidence in yourself to really pivot at that young age.
2: I did one play, Uh, a friend of mine, her name is Erin Washington. She was a theater major, and I can't even remember if I had a conversation with her that I was interested in acting. Um, I don't know why she uh, asked me to be a part of her. Uh, uh, It was a, it was a, uh, it was like a directing thesis or something she had to do for a class that she was taking and she asked me to be a part of it. And so I got the opportunity to get on the stage and to act. And I was like, ah, my God, I've been missing this. And then then there, someone told me that you could go to Florida State and audition for their student films. So I was like, okay, cool. That sounds like uh, a fun thing to do. And so uh, I went over to Florida State, auditioned for a student film, got the role, and then got exposed to the world of filmmaking. So it was my first time actually being on the set. And that's what lit the fire in terms of wanting, wanting to write direct uh, for the big screen. And so then I set out my senior year to write and direct my first film. Uh, and I premiered that film uh, in our school auditorium. And sitting in the theater with a, a room full of my peers and experiencing them watch something that I wrote, that I created, that I put on the screen is what solidified my desire to be a filmmaker. So I was a business major. I wasn't even studying film. I was studying business admin. And initially, I was in a five-year MBA program. But I was like, nope, I'm going to drop down to the the four-year, get my bachelor's. I'm out of here. I'm moving to LA to be a filmmaker. And that was it. it.
1: Wait, what, I have you? to jump Wait, in. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> this is what also, usually James, happens.
0: happen. we do this. We fight <laughs> about questions as well. Um, but no, so I wanna BD, let me, let me this, this is my phrase. phrase. So I got, I got, I can do this. Um, <laughs> so Jay, I think that's so fascinating. Um, so you were, you were a business major. And what was the conversation like with your parents to say that I am going to stop, You know, this business road that I'm going down, because I know that's very that's very safe and traditional and say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this completely different creative space, explore this, move to L.A., all these things. How was that conversation like with them?
2: You know, my folks were supportive, I think, because I was always a creative kid. They weren't surprised Mm. Um, and I didn't necessarily have the parents that were pushing me in a particular direction when it came to a career. And also, I went to college on a full academic scholarship. Uh, My parents didn't have to pay a dime for my college education. So it wasn't one of those things where they were like, look, we we didn't didn't spend all of this money for you to get this degree. We need a return on that investment. It was more so, "Okay, if that's what you want to do. And so I was really blessed to have supportive parents because I moved to L.A. with probably $500 to my name. I didn't have a car. I didn't even have a job lined up. I had found uh, an apartment to sublet through, this is random, I took piano as my free elective in college because I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. So I was like, all right, I'm going to just take piano one and two in school and randomly ran into my piano instructor after I graduated. Now, mind you, you know, you graduate from college and folks are always like, what's next? Are you going to grad school? Do you have a job lined up? I didn't have none of those things. I didn't know what to say. So I would always just say, I'm moving to L.A. I didn't have a job or an apartment in LA. I just said I'm moving to LA. And so when I ran into my piano instructor, I gave her my spiel. Oh, I'm moving to LA. And so she said, where are you living? And I told her, I don't know. And someone had told me that you couldn't find an apartment in LA for less than $800. I was paying $300 in Tallahassee, Florida. So $800 was like, that's a lot of money. Uh, But I told her my budget was 800. And she said she had an apartment in LA. She had She had gone to L.A. to audition for the L.A. Opera, and she didn't get a a, a spot. And so she was coming back to Florida to teach. And so she had an empty apartment. And that's how I got to L.A. I
1: mean, talk about serendipity. In In L.A. LA
2: for two weeks, and I had been reaching out to Will Packer because I had met him, told him I wanted to be a filmmaker, had sent him my film, reaching out, reaching out, you know, to no avail. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to just go to L.A. First thing I did was I got a job at Macy's. Uh, and then two weeks in, I get a call from his assistant and say, Hey, we're working on this film. Uh, we want to offer you an internship, but it shoots in LA. Do you think you can make it out here to do the internship? I was like, I moved here two weeks ago. You just let me know where I need to be and what time. And I'm there. Wow. Wait,
0: what movie was it?
2: It was was called, called, uh, Takers. Takers. Oh, that's what I thought it was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Wow. Paul Walker, mm-hmm. T.I., yeah. So Chris Brown,
2: mm-hmm.
1: That's really, so you're reaching out to Will. So at this point, you're just emboldened. Like, you're like, I got nothing to lose. I'm in L.A., I got $500 in my pocket. I'm working at Macy's. But I've got the desire and passion to move forward here. And so getting that positive response from Will to do takers, you've got to be like, okay, this is it, but you're still working at Macy's. I don't know if this was a paid internship or not. No, I left. So, oh, you
2: did? I left Macy's. The internship was unpaid, but you know, typically internships, are there Tuesday, like Thursday. Yeah. Like Monday, Wednesday, you're doing like two days. I was there Monday through Friday, eight hours. And so they were like, we might as well pay them. So <laughs> after interning for free <laughs> for a couple of weeks, they just brought me on as a production assistant. So I was Will's intern who was getting paid as a PA. So I had a a paid job in LA.
1: I mean,
0: I mean, shout out to our guy, Will Packer. Shout out. (laughs) I love love our
2: Will. Mm -hmm.
1: So, okay. So you do takers and I was doing some research, AKA stalking you last night in preparation for, (laughs) for our, our, our chat. And, from there if i understand correctly you got a your next role or next step was being an assistant to a creative executive is that right or did i miss a step Mm -hmm. yeah yeah.
2: so So after after that that internship internship, will went back to atlanta i'm still in la but i see the, the blessing was i was on will's desk as his intern across literally right across adjacent from his desk was the assistant to the head of production for the studio so i would chop it up with her when she would walk away from her desk she would ask me to cover you know her phones and so we developed a relationship and so once that internship ended i reached out to her and said hey i would love to you know come back and pa on another film and so they brought me back and i was a pa in the office on death at a funeral the remake And then I became a cast assistant slash PA on a movie called Priest. And then I became uh, assistant to the creative executive, Scott Strauss, on a movie called Burlesque. Uh, So that was kind of the jump. So I ended up staying at the studio for about three years after that internship with Will. And all I needed was a foot in the door. So I always thank Will for giving me that opportunity because once you let me in, I'm going to do my thing. And that's what happened.
0: I love, love, love that. I actually, you um, worked at Screen Gems because I worked on when I was an agency side. I worked on all those movies you talked about. That's so crazy. Wait, <laughs> how did you two
1: meet? How did you two meet in LA? We how did we, like, I don't think know shit. this story.
0: Uh, how did we meet, James? The streets, I the streets, the yeah, LA streets. I, yeah, <laughs> we did, and we went on that trip to. Um, we went on that trip to Mexico. To Mexico. And whatever yeah. year that was and I think that's I, what
2: think just, like. I, was, I think we just had similar friends, and yeah. you know, you just we just crossed paths, and yeah, the rest is and history. I, and I, yeah. like I
0: told Didi all the time, I said, you know, I am always if she's the president, I'm the vice president of the James Bland fan club because like I'm just because you're just such like. You're you're not at LA. You don't. You're not. you are we are not from there. But you just you know you you've been moving and do, grooving and doing your thing there. But it, it's never gotten to your head. Like you have legit receipts that it, it could get to your head. Like I'm not gonna talk to this person or do that because that's a very LA thing to do. But you've always mm-hmm. just been so genuine and so amazing. So I love the hearing this story uh a journey you,
2: because you as well because john you have, you've leveled up you've bossed up <laughs> and uh you've always been willing to help to give back uh to talk to folks i got somebody else i need to connect both of you guys with by the way um but i think we all collectively understand that that's what this is about that yeah. we have to link arms yeah and that if we don't help each other then yeah. like what are we doing yeah
0: you know? um, I love that. It's about community, and I think that's one thing about Black in the Scene that we're also trying to do. Like We're just shedding light on people's journey, because everyone's journey, we've probably talked to 20-some people uh, throughout seasons, the seasons of the show, and everyone's journey is so different. But it's also, you hear so many similarities about just being the only one, and what you had to sacrifice, and just the journey being so challenging. And I think that's what we want to bring to light. Like You're not where you are today because of just because of fate. You're there because there's just so much work you had to put into it, so much sacrifice you yeah. had to put into it. And I just, I want to like, res- I give you so much homage and respect to that because, again, when I, when I saw you were directing an Insecure documentary, I literally like, I cried. I literally cried. I was like, we oh both God, did. This is so this is so and it was so good. It was so good. But it was so freaking good. It was like the perfect send-off. And I know you have a relationship with Issa, so it just, it just made sense. And I was just like, oh, James, amazing. I'm so happy for you. So uh, kudos to go. you and everything else. I'm really, really, really happy about that. Um, but going back to your PA work um, during that time period, because I think it's very interesting of like, that was your first time. You were interning, then you are PAing. So you probably were like, what am I doing exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, what were you, what were the kind of the thoughts <laughs> that, that were going through your head? Like you're on a big budgeted feature film for a major studio with yeah. a big all-star cast. Talk about what that journey was like actually in mm-hmm. that space during that time. You
2: know, during that time, even though like production was so foreign to me, I felt as if I had been prepared for a time such as this. Uh, being an HBCU graduate, uh, I a pleasure fraternity, I was student body vice president. And so you know how as HBCU, in particular as us, us, fam- us fam humans, how we move, Like, we can come into a space and we have a, a certain level of professionalism, a certain level of, of grind, a certain level of tenacity. Where although I was completely unfamiliar, like production was foreign to me, I was a quick learner, and it was, um, and also because I started in the office as an office PA, it's like those skills. I went to business school, and so I had a, a bit more of a of a of a polish, you know, to me that uh, the production coordinators and even the executives gravitated more towards me because my presentation was always uh, a step uh, above. And so if, if I was making copies and I had to deliver scripts, the way my scripts were delivered were a little bit more pristine, pristine, you know? And I just remember having to put together like casting boards. And it's also where that create, creativity came in um, and that arts and crafts because my boards were always uh, just incredibly polished. Um, and so, uh, I, I knew that I was there for a short time that I did not want to stay an assistant or a PA for a long time. I was there to get what I needed to get and to get out. And so I often say that, and that was my approach was I wanted to treat it like a, a school, I needed to learn what I needed to learn so I could go and apply it in real time, uh, towards my projects. And, uh, so yeah, that was kind of my mindset. Um. During the time as a PA,
1: which is amazing, so I was simultaneously too. Simultaneously,
2: also making projects, and so I was learning production, and then I would immediately go and I wrote and directed my first short film while I was at Screen Gems, and I also utilized Screen Gems resources <laughs> in terms of copy machines. In terms of, I, I made friends with the crash service guys; they gave me crafty, you know, for my own set. I met my producer on set. The DGA trainee became the producer of my short film. Uh, And the studio, the the other crew, they were rallying behind me because I was also really vocal about being a filmmaker and having a project that I was actively working on. And you know, when you speak up and you speak out and you let people know what you're doing, you'll be surprised at the amount of people who are willing to help you.
1: So James, in doing that, You've got a nine to five, and we know it's not really nine to five when you're working at a studio. So there's all sorts 12, of stuff. 12. Correct. Yeah. You no, know, not 12 12, twelve, twelve.
2: Twelve hours. So, so like, like a six, six to
1: six. Yes. So nine to nine. <laughs> right. So you are yeah. doing that on top of, I guess, coming home working on your own thing, or were you a weekend warrior? Are you working during lunch? Just could you expand on maybe how you did, how you managed to accomplish so much when there's only 24 hours in a day? In other words, there were no excuses on your part. You were like, I'm getting this done. So how did you manage your time?
2: Yeah, all of the above in terms of what you said, in terms of being a weekend warrior, in terms of also, you know, when you're a PA in the office, there's a lot of downtime. <laughs> a lot of time where you're just sitting around waiting on a, a task. Uh, and, you know, 12 hours is a long time to be in an office. And so uh, I would work on my scripts uh, while I was you know in the office waiting for a different tasks to go do a run or to they needed copies or to make you know coffee and so I think you know the thing that was also my projects were always on my heart, and so although I was um at the studio physically like mentally, I was always somewhere else. I was always thinking about. Um, the things that I wanted to create and put into the world, and I kind of utilized the studio system and being on that big set as the inspiration, uh, because I knew I wanted to get there, but I knew in order to get there, in order to be the creative or the talent on a big movie set, I needed to go and make something. And so,
0: and and then in the process of doing that, so you're working, you're 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 working all the time, pretty much. Like, what was your? what was your thing that kept you going? What, like what motivated you throughout that? Because I'm sure there were a lot of challenges. Like I'm not probably making as much money as I probably should be making or I'm spending too much time doing this. But like what kept you going and going and going? to kind of get? And how finished? long
1: did it take you from envisioning your first film to actually getting it done so we have a clear sense of time?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was making $500 a week. As a as a PA, I remember that because I remember I was. Uh, it took me like uh, almost three paychecks to get, cover my rent. <laughs> um, what kept me going? I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos of folks that I admired, and I kept this journal, and I would write the journey of people that had you know gotten to a place that I, I wanted to be, and I kind of utilized other folks' success and journey to motivate me. Um, like I would randomly just watch like uh, like Academy Award acceptance speeches, so uh, or I would go and read different people's like bio, um, and it's always something when you realize that the people that you admire were also in your shoes, um, and yeah, that was the thing that I did while I was also when I wasn't working on my scripts, I was always watching something that was kind of motivating me because you know that office life oof, particularly when you're creative, it can really suck the, the joy <laughs> out of you. And time moves so freaking slow when you're in an office behind a desk doing something that you really don't want to do. So I always had to find things to kind of keep me you know, on track uh, or to keep me motivated and inspired. And in terms of the, the timetable from uh, how long it took to get the film up and going, I honestly don't remember with that particular project, with that film. But if I could give you a timetable for like Giants, if I could jump a little bit, if you guys don't mind. Please. So I love, I was an assistant, as, I was an assistant to a creative executive at Screen James. I wanted to be an actor as well. I asked my boss if they, if I could be in a film that we were working on, There was a small role that I thought, oh, I could do this. I would be perfect for it. And he said, well, if you're on set, who's going to do your job? And I realized that I could never get to the place of being a creative and being an actor, you know, being on that side, you know, of the studio system. So I knew I had to leave. And so I left, I moved into a two-bedroom apartment with five friends, and I just started making things. Uh, and I started focusing on web series. That's how I met Issa Rae, because I made my first web series. It was called Fail. She had just... uh launched the misadventures of aqua black girl we had a mutual friend who wanted to also do a web series and so she brought us together to pick our brains and uh through that process isa and i kind of connected and decided to support each other and that looked like me posting an episode of aqua black girl on my facebook wall because that was the thing to do like that's how you promoted people because there was no instagram it was like oh, i'll post a link on my facebook wall Um, did about five web series that did not take off, right? And then, so I went back into the workforce and I started working as a digital producer for TV Land, working full time. And then I decided I need to make something. And so I started Giants. Now that timeline, again, a weekend warrior, working nine to five as a digital producer at TV Land. It took me a year to write and shoot the first season And then it took me another year, a full year, to edit because I was editing every episode myself to edit, to do all of the post-production music mixing. So Giants uh, season one, six episodes was a two-year process from inception to putting it on the page to getting it in the can to then putting the project out in the world was two years.
1: And you're also funding this yourself with your 9 to 5, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Man, I got to tell you. I mean, John and I self-fund, but we don't we're not spending that kind of money, and there's hard costs associated with production. And so you're learning to do a lot of these things yourself, right? Cuz I'm sure you're like, I don't have the budget to pay somebody to edit, so I'm I, I'm going to have to do this editing, but it's going to take me longer. So you're literally mm-hmm. building the plane while flying it. Yes. Trying to stay motivated. By the way, your manifestation skills are amazing. We need to have a master class from James Bland <laughs> on manifestation.
2: Let's do it. Correct. I <laughs> am
1: dead. Like when you're talking about just ways to keep yourself motivated and really, yes. I mean, it's clear you're obviously a self-starter and you have a great deal of faith in your ability to figure things out. And that's not to say everything was smooth. I'm sure- If you want to just talk about any challenges that you faced aside from the obvious of like having to do a soul sucking job for money, (laughs) but any challenges that you faced sort of along the way where you were just like, am I in the right place at the right time doing the right thing? Like, please speak to that or.
2: I got robbed at gunpoint (laughs) and uh, yeah, that was early. That was in my first six months. And that was like my defining moment is also was the catalyst for Giants. Uh, Internship with Will Packer ended. Went back to the mall, working at the mall, walking home, still no car. I had my backpack with my laptop and my scripts. Two guys walked up to me with a gun and said, give us your shit. And I was like, not today. And so we got into altercation. um, And it was that experience that led to a conversation with my mom because I thought maybe it's time to come home. You know, I'm out here. I'm a, I'm a college graduate working at the mall. I ain't got no money. I ain't got no cars. Got robbed at gunpoint. I just had to go to the hospital. My face all fucked up. You know, maybe it's time to come home. And my mom was like, no, you still have to fight your giant. Like, and that means staying in LA and continuing, you know, to push forward. And so, uh, so that was a very real physical challenge. And then I would say the other challenges were I started to suffer a lot from, like, imposter syndrome. Um, And it's it's wild. I was having a recent conversation with a friend of mine who is, uh, who is uh, Ugandan. And she was saying that she feels like imposter syndrome is a very African American experience. uh, Because we were perhaps, perhaps it's because we were raised to, uh, to, with the idea that we have to be twice as good. And so even though we're already like really great, we always feel like we have to be better or we're not enough. And so I would say one of my honestly biggest challenges was just my own insecurities of just not feeling enough. Or, and also um, just wondering if it's for me because you spend so much time, like I'm going on 14 years in LA and uh, there were times where I just wonder, is this ever going to happen? you know? Um, and so a few of the challenges, but I feel like some of the, the bigger ones were the ones in my mind. You know, it was the the mental challenges that I had to overcome.
0: And and talk us through because I think we all have those that those those occurrences in your mind of like, what's next? How do I get to the next step? Am I doing the right mm-hmm. thing? Am I talking? You know, I know I personally went through that as well. And, and, and LA is a tough city to maneuver around, especially if you want to be a creative like yourself. What was the thing or things that you did to kind of? reinforce the complete opposite of that to kind of keep you moving still? Because I think that, especially from a mental perspective, like, did you, did you find yourself having to meditate more? Did you find yourself just diving into your writing more to kind of cope with it? What What was was that that kind of tangible thing thing that you did to kind of help you escape those
1: those
2: kind of, that mindset?
1: Were you in church on Sunday? Like you were supposed to be?
2: (laughs) I was, I was. Yeah. I was was in church heavy in particular, early one church. Uh, early, I was early
0: winter <laughs>
2: early one church like North Hollywood one church I was in church every Sunday and Wednesdays as well so I definitely had that spiritual you know uh, support I also wrote my way through it I just uh you know even though I didn't necessarily feel like I was that great I still uh I never let go of the desire that thing in me that said I need to create like um even when I felt like the things that I was making wasn't enough. I just had to do it. Um, and then, but I think the the, the thing that was the most uh, critical for me was my tribe. I always surrounded myself around people who reminded me and who could see the things you know in me that I had lost sight of. And I would say that was the, the, the most important thing. I just always had people around me that spoke life into me, and that just reminded me, "Yo, you the shit," or "Yo, you are, um, you're a lot fur, you're a lot farther than you may, you know, realize." Or "I'm really proud of you," and then you're like, "Oh yeah, you're right. Okay, yeah yeah, okay, I'm good."
0: You, you <laughs> can, you never, you take, you can, we kind of take for granted those small moments of that though, because but they always come at the right time. I have a mentor in my life. When I've had a rough day, she will text me out the blue, and I it, it'll be like the best wording of like, You're such a rock star, you're great. And I'm like, Damn right, I'm great. I needed to hear that. <laughs> I, knew, I, I, I needed that, <laughs> yeah, I needed that. And you because you'll go down this road, and I, and I love that you said that your tribe because I know you have a very close circle of friends, um, that have been you know a, a, a rock for you, um, to a degree. And I want to talk about that for a moment because, again. When you moved to LA, how familiar with the city were you in terms of friends and everything like that? So you kind of had to start over to a degree, right? I didn't have any.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I I moved to LA. It was just me. I had a cousin here who picked me up from the airport and she lived in Long Beach and dropped me off in mid city. That was it. Um, And so the tribe that I have now are folks that I accumulated along the way or folks who migrated to LA, who I knew from college or back home. But when I initially got here, it was just me. Um, but um, what was the question? I'm sorry.
0: You answered it actually. Okay. I did. Uh, okay. And and one other thing I want to say too about that is, um, cause I know a lot of people always talk about the challenges of LA, right? So obviously the mm-hmm. the, the expenses, not knowing people, that it's a very different culture coming from Florida, coming from Atlanta. For me, it was like, I was like, "Whoa, what is this? Um, and you've been there, we said, 14 years. 14. What would you tell your What would you tell your 14 years ago self, James Blaine, when you come to L.A.? What would be that, like, one piece of advice you would say, say to yourself back then?
2: It won't happen overnight. And so the quicker you accept that, the better off you'll be. Just know that it's a journey. And, um, you know, you don't want to shoot up like a rocket you want to you want that slow ascension like an airplane so once you hit that altitude you glide because the goal is longevity the goal is not to be a shooting star that burns bright and burns fast yeah.
1: that is the such a great like analogy to thinking that we have to peak at 25 and by the way you're still so young it's unbelievable you have really worked so hard and you're not even 40 yet. So God only knows where you're going to be when you're 40, 45 at this rate. Um, but it just shows you that you really, as John said, you're hardworking. You do the work. You have an, uh, an immense amount of um, faith and, and diligence, but also just grace because you're not getting there alone, Alone, like the tribe that you guys are pouring mm-hmm. into each other. I'm sure you're mentoring in official and unofficial ways. So you're just pouring back into the community. And one thing in my research of you, Mr. Bland, was it was um, I think a, a vi- video you did for a Queerity Award and you talked about wanting to see yourself. You also talked about the pivotal time of you coming out right and for me it it, it it was really it hit home for me because I have a young nephew. I'm from Alabama, and my family, I'm sure grew up very much like your family, very religious um, in church on Wednesday Sundays, you know uh, uh, evening service the whole nine. and my nephew, who is about 31 and has been out for a while, is really struggling right now between his, He's an opera singer. He's a creative too. And um, actually has a master's degree in, in music. So he's a brilliant kid, but he's struggling in a small town, being a young gay black male, a creative. And I've, and this is not something I can speak to him. I just know a bunch of amazing, fabulous, you know, gay black men and everyone's journey I'm sure is different, but you wanted to you your journey to that place. I would love if you could just share a little bit about that, if you want to, or any advice for my nephew and any other uh, uh, anyone else embarking on this this journey.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I would say what I what I did not realize is that uh, my queerness was my superpower. Um, and we spend so many years trying to, uh, hide and play small and, um, and not really recognizing that we are pushing aside the best parts of ourselves and the thing that will ultimately elevate, uh, elevate us, elevate our lives and our careers, um, and the best thing that you can be is authentic. And for those of us who are raised in the church, um, my mother told me this. My mom said that God can do more with an honest heart. And so uh, that is what he's searching. And I think scriptures tells us that he scans the earth and he goes from to the throat looking for a heart that is willing to serve him. And it does not matter your sexual orientation or who you choose to love. And it's oftentimes those are the people that God is looking for. Those are the folks that God is looking to use, you know? And so um, the quicker that you can accept that and that you can learn just radical love and agape love um, and, uh, you know, and Christ said that three things shall remain. And the first of these is love, Um, but it has to start with yourself. And what I find and what my experience was, is that I had not fully learned how to, how to love me, you know, how to love James. And I was living for the expectation of other people. And I think oftentimes we grow up with this embedded feeling that we are unlovable. And it is, a, it is the work of the church and the work of our family to speak against that. Because inherently, that's kind of what society in Florida with this don't say gay bill, uh, is we're telling young people that inherently you are unlovable and that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so um, yeah, I think that would be my advice is is to do the work and whatever you got to do to get to that radical love where you can love you first, nothing else really matters you know after that.
1: And for you, the work was you were I'm sure you stayed prayed up, you surrounded yourself. With a wonderful tribe of people, yeah. was there anything else that you did? Were you hitting that gym hard? Were you walking? You're journaling at this point. I'm just looking for tangible things that I think that people yeah. can take away. That like, listen, I you can Google it. all this stuff, but yeah. it's really interesting to hear what you know might have worked for you.
2: Yeah, you got to get around people. Who, you, mm-hmm. I think you got to get around people who are there. Uh, you know, it's like that thing they say: it gets better. Uh, But we don't often know that because we don't often get the opportunity to see ourselves. And it's kind of like what I said in that video is I desperately wanted to see myself, uh, but uh, representation is lacking when it comes to uh, queer black men on screen. And so we don't get to see the experience of a black man loving another black man on screen. And so we don't necessarily all in particular if you're growing up in a small town, like I remember for me, the first time I even saw a glimmer of it was in Moon was not Moonlight, was in Noah's Ark. And that was fifteen years ago. And then Moonlight came around and Moonlight was like the first time that I saw uh a glimmer of myself because I couldn't necessarily relate to the characters uh in in Noah's Ark as much because it just felt like a completely foreign world. And so I, I I guess to go back to the question in terms of what is the tangible work look like uh, the best you can, and it it can maybe be difficult to find folks um, in particular where you live, but if you can get around people who are there, who uh, have gotten past acceptance and are like reaching that place of pride, I think uh, you can then have the conversations uh, and then they can, can on you and speak against some of the, the things that are just embedded, you know, in us, and then therapy. I mean, therapy is, uh, I think, the place where I did a lot of that, that inner child, you know, type of type of work that you got to do in terms of recognizing a lot of your, your, your patterns, and why am I self-sabotaging? And, you know, it's also that realization that um, kind of, it's it's kind of cool that we we started this podcast talking about, like young James, like little James, but trying to get back to him. And, uh, and that can show up in different ways. It can just show up going, getting back to your creativity or getting back to things that you let go because you felt like you didn't have the permission or you weren't allowed to do those things. And so I think those are probably a few tangible examples.
0: James, I think you need to add like public speaker, motivational speaker to your to your <laughs> resume as well. You have such a really beautiful way of your words. Obviously, you're oh, a writer, you. but like the way it just yeah. there's just so much compassion um, that you have, and I'm just like Didi's Dee crying as you can see. <laughs> Check, you did what you needed to do. So I, I really I, I I loved everything you said, and one other thing. One other thing you said too was that really resonated with me was about what your mom said to you about being a giant and i I think that's such an amazing thing for a black woman to just reinforce that in her black son and I just I wanted to just call that out because I just think that's such a you have very amazing parents for for what it seems and you and you're very blessed to have that so kudos to you um we are have to wrap it up very soon, but um I want to talk about. What's next? What's in the future? I know I hinted towards a few things in the, in, in the intro, um, but what's, what else do you have brewing? What's going on that you can talk about?
2: I, I, I want to say The Best man's going to come out later this year, but don't quote me on that. Um, beyond that, I'm in development on a show that I uh, created. It's called Trade, and it's, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar. Oh, it's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. of those things. And so currently in development on that. Uh, so prayers up. I get a, a pilot order, uh, and immediately following a series order, uh, very soon. But um, yeah, that's what I'm actively working on, and um, that that is that is it. And, <laughs> and still, that, I'm sure still writing
0: your own personal things as well, and Yeah,
2: out. so working on a feature, uh, set a goal to get this feature uh, that has been kind of rumbling in my heart and in my head onto the page this year. Uh, we'll probably continue to staff, We'll jump on another show. And uh, also looking to direct my first DGA episode of television this year.
0: Thank you so much to our guests and to you for listening to this week's episode of black on the scene.
1: We'd love it. If you'd leave us a rating and review, plus share your, own love letter for black entertainment and follow us on all social media platforms at black on the scene see you next time
0: hi everyone we are officially wrapped on season three of black on the scene thank you thank you thank you dd and i really appreciate all the love all the support all of our viewers and followers have shown us over the past three seasons and just you wait we will be right back with you guys again next year for season four see you soon